The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, I invite us now to join together uh, looking at God's Word to hear Him speak through His Scripture, through His Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. And also I'd invite you, if you grabbed a bulletin, there is an outline on the back of our topic of the day as we're going through this series on life in the body. A couple of things before we start. We're going to be not just in one passage, but several verses we'll be looking at. You'll see those in your bulletin. wrote those down. Before we do, I wanted to. I just want to welcome any first-time visitors that we have, or just any guests. And in particular, uh, today we have a visiting pastor and his family with us, as we have on occasion, like last Sunday and today, uh, Pastor Stephen Chen and his wife Shirley and their two uh, cute little handsome boys. So, Stephen, can you stand just so that uh, let's hear for our local pastor, Stephen. Uh, Stephen is a shepherd here in Mountain View, so neighbors almost in walking distance, and Stephen and I had coffee at Starbucks like five years ago, and getting to know each other and had some similar uh, backgrounds in terms of study and fellowship, and uh, so he's still in the neighborhood, that's that's good, and uh, they had the day off to come, and so they came to be part of our fellowship, so just thank you so much, that it's just kind of neat how... Uh, we have occasion to do that, to meet local and know local shepherds. Um, so I pray that they have a blessed day and that uh, also, Stephen and your family, if you don't have plans for lunch, we have our fellowship meal afterwards that you're a part of to be where we could maybe connect a little bit. That's if you don't have plans. So thank you so much for being with us today. Um, so let's go ahead. Those of you who haven't been with us, we are in the middle of a series. Actually, we're nearing the end of a series that I call Life in the Body. And the idea was to take a pause after we've been through a couple of books in the New Testament. Most recently, we went through the book of Titus, and before that, the book of James. It's been a couple of years, actually, in those two wonderful little books. And we, have, we, we deal with the theme as is driven by the text, and so I thought it would be a good time to take a little break and zero in some, on some fundamentals of church life to get us all on the same page and talk about priorities that we need to have in the forefront of our mind all the time as Christians and especially priorities in the local church as we live together as a church family because that's our view here at Grace Bible Fellowship. The local church is a church family. We take that very seriously. We think there's a scriptural precedent for that. And so we're dealing with church family themes. And up to this point, it's about a two-month study. And we talked about discipleship which is basic to the Christian life. We talked about conflict resolution because there is always conflict in the local church because sinners attend the local church. That would be all of us. Uh, We talked about biblical preaching last week. Uh, We talked about using your spiritual gift and serving in the church. We talked about uh, giving financially in the church, among other things. And then today we talk about uh, membership church membership and implications of that and then next week we'll pick up with the ordinances of the church so let's go ahead and look at uh, the topic of the day which is church membership or just membership in 2006 I wrote that little book on Christian living and the idea was it was covering 11 basic disciplines of the Christian life and membership was one of them and the title of that book was I just called join with an exclamation point And I talked about membership in it. And our church has a formal membership process. 
Not every church has membership. Uh, Calvary Chapel is probably one of the larger denominations known in America and around the world as an evangelical denomination. And most of those, if not all of them, they don't have a formal membership process. Uh, And then even in our area, some well-known churches don't have a formal membership process. Ray Stedman, when he was pastoring over there in Palo Alto, had a church that was growing, and then they had some extension campuses, and one in Cupertino, one in Palo Alto uh, at that church. Uh, They don't have a formal membership process. So we understand that, we recognize that. Then there are other churches that have formal membership, and you've got both ends of the spectrum. Um, But I've I've had occasion after writing that book and talking about that chapter with some folks who gave me some feedback, gave me some input, even some people who came and attended this church and thought maybe this was their church home or they wanted to be a part of this church and they explored it and uh, some explored the membership process. And there are a, a few over the last seven years who decided they didn't think membership was biblical. And their main argument was, well, you don't see the word membership in the New Testament. And I guess technically that's true, and you don't see the word Trinity in the New Testament either. Uh, I think membership is taught in many different passages from many clear, definitive biblical principles. And you take all those biblical principles and you synthesize together, and what you end up with is a biblical membership theology. Very clear in my mind. So in some of these folks, I would say, okay, you don't believe in membership, but do you believe you need to be committed to your local church? They would say, uh, you, oh, you got me there. Yeah, I need to be committed. Okay. Do you think you need to be faithful to your local church? Oh, yeah. I, I, why'd you ask that question? Yeah, I need to be faithful. Do you need to be consistent in attending your local church? Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you have to identify with a local shepherd, do you think? Is that probably a good idea? Uh, oh, yeah. That, that you're accountable to? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, how about, is there a place you should be serving on a regular, ongoing basis? Well, yeah, probably. With a team who holds you accountable of serving. Yeah. Wouldn't you consider the local church a family? Because that's terminology right out of the Bible. Yeah. So when you put all those together, commitment and faithfulness and accountability and service and family and regularity, that's my definition of membership. That's what I mean by biblical membership. So if you're hung up with the word membership, that's okay, don't use that word. Let's use other words, commitment, faithfulness. And so we're going to go ahead and look at, just to summarize it, uh, life in the body, Biblical membership. And I, got, I came up with uh, six points. And like last week and all these other topics, there's nothing spiritual about six points. I could say way more. I just tried to distill it down to some basic priorities for us to think it through. Again, this is not an exhaustive or comprehensive study on church membership. This is just uh, getting the basics out so we're all on the same page of the fundamentals that I believe Scripture clearly teaches of why every local church really should have some kind of a membership process and membership of accountability. Uh, You can put an asterisk right now, actually, next to point number five, because if I had to take one of these six points to really distill it down and narrow it, then it would be point five. The GVF membership process is really contingent and driven on point five and two key verses or passages that we'll look at there. And the rest of these just kind of fill it out and explain it. So reasons why I think membership is biblical, starting at number one, all Christians need to be identified with a local church identified ED. 
all Christians need to be identified with a local church. I mean, that's how it was in the early church. The first church that came into existence was the first church of Jerusalem. First, there were 120 people praying after Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And then he was about to ascend, and he ascended, and then they're praying, 120 committed believers, and then God sent the Holy Spirit. He started the church, and so that became the first church, 120 people. Somebody was counting heads because Acts chapter 1 says there were 120 people. Somebody was serious about membership, 120 people. And that became the first church. And then the story of the book of Acts goes, there's evangelism, and, and God keeps adding to the church, and then that 120 grew to several hundred, 500 were added to the church. This is the first church of Jerusalem. It was a specific church. It was the church in Jerusalem that people identified with. It was the church. And there were 500 people. Somebody was keeping track of who was joining the church, who got baptized. They're literally tabulating this and writing it down. That's formal. It's a formal process of acknowledgement and accountability. And the apostles were the first pastors and elders of that church. They wanted to know who was joining the church, who was in, who was out. They are accountable for those souls. That's formal membership. And then it just kept growing. It grew to 3,000 souls. Somebody was counting. Then it grew to 5,000 souls plus women and children. That's counting and tabulating. So there is this formal process acknowledged early on in the book of Acts as the church began to grow. And then that splintered off. And then other churches, local churches, were being started in cities. And the Apostle Paul was uh, the premier church planter. And he probably planted maybe 20 or more churches during the course of his ministry and Everywhere he'd go into places where they didn't have a church, he'd preach the gospel, he'd stay there till some believed, and then he would start up a church. And when he did it in Philippi, that became the church of Philippi. There was only one church there originally, and if you were a Christian, you identified with that local church. You didn't have, like today, we have like a church on every corner of every conceivable flavor and liking. I like chocolate, I'm going to go there. I like vanilla, I'm going there. I like this music, I'm going there. I like that program, I'm going there. And you've got, probably on your drive here, you could have passed 10 to 15 churches. Uh, That is not the way it was in the New Testament. There was, especially when it first started out, in that city, in that area, there was one church, it was definitive, all Christians knew about it, and they all were a part of that church with that local leadership. There was no question, no ambiguity. It's all over the New Testament. And that's why the Apostle Paul, in the... Just go to Philippians. Is one example uh, where this is clearly seen, where all Christians need to identify with the local church, and that because that was the New Testament pattern and model. So Paul starts this church in Philippi. He pastors there for a while, trains up leadership, keeps tabs on it, writes a letter to encourage them. And then he says he sends this letter, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, to all the believers, to all the Christians, to all those who go to church, where? In Philippi, including the overseers, the elders, and the deacons. That is one recognized local assembly church family right there. All the saints, all the deacons, all the elders. A definitive, identifiable group that was accountable to the Apostle Paul in his day. And if you were a believer and you lived in the vicinity of Philippi, then you were identifying with that local church. And then as far as a reference there, I put Revelation 2 and 3. You can flick to the back last book of your Bible in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where the Apostle John, this is decades later, this is like in 90s uh, A.D. as he's an old man. 
Many other churches had been planted in different areas. These churches were planted in Asia Minor. And he's writing to very specific local congregations who have identifiable leadership, identifiable people who attend there, people with names. These local churches that people identified with. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1 in Revelation, to the angel or the messenger of the church, the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, a definitive, specific local church. Verse 12, to the church in Pergamum, the church. Verse 18, the church in Thyatira, chapter 3, verse 1, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia. So these cities had one church at the time. It was a local church. And if you were a Christian, that is the church that you identified with. And that's the pattern of the New Testament. That's the model we are to follow. That is the expectation of Christ. And so even today, when you have a plethora of choices, not only uh, of all kinds of various uh, church denominations and even buildings as you're driving to GBF, you have a plethora of choices of how you're going to do your Christianity even on television and radio and CDs and MP3s because that's just what some people do today. I'm not going to a local church. I do my church on an MP3 and I just listen to sermons. That, that's really what a lot of people do today. I go to church, by I listen to this preacher on the radio or I watch this preacher on television on Sundays. He's my favorite and I do that in my living room with my, as I sip my lemonade in the convenience of my own home. Um, so that's very different than the New Testament model where they didn't have that technology, didn't have that option, and that's not even the best option because you're supposed to be getting shepherding over your soul through your local church and you can't get that through a one-way video. And we'll talk more about that. So every Christian is expected to identify with a local church on a regular basis. Number two, all Christians need to be serving in a local church. This would be one of many lines of argument uh, from a Bible, biblical point of view of we need to be members of a local church. And by the way, I am not arguing for membership at GBF today. I am arguing that the Bible mandates that every Christian be accountable and committed to a local church, even if it's not GBF. I would say, and people need to do the same thing, have the same thought about Pastor Stevens. Church. They need to be just as committed to a local church. But one of the reasons we need to be members and faithful and regular is we are all expected to serve in the local church. All Christians need to be serving in the local church. First Peter 4.10, uh, Peter's writing to Christians, uh, and he says, as each one has received a special gift, so he's acknowledging every Christian has a spiritual gift. That happened at salvation. It was given by God at his discretion. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit who lives in you as a Christian. Even if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you have one if you're a believer. And that's why Peter says, as each Christian has, past tense, received a special spiritual gift given to them by God, employ it, use it, implement it, be serving with it. It's a verb. Do it. Now, spiritual gift isn't a spiritual gift until it is being used and put into action. So every Christian is expected to employ and use their spiritual gift, how? In serving one another, in serving one another. The basic expectation of a Christian is to be using your spiritual gift in serving others in the local church. How can you do that in your living room, on your sofa, if your church is just watching some preacher guy? And there's some good preacher guys on television. You know, I'd like to, some, there are mornings on Sunday where I would like to stay home and watch a good preacher and not come here. So I like the idea, but you can't fulfill 1 Peter 4.10. 
which is a basic expectation of every Christian. That's, that is a legitimate question, question to ask every Christian. Where are you serving in the local church? What is your spiritual gift and how are you serving? And that's not uh, domineering. That's like out of the Bible right here. This comes from God himself. So as each Christian has received a spiritual gift, employ it, keep using it, present tense, in an ongoing manner to one another in service to others to build them up as good stewards. See, a steward is somebody who has a precious gift that they don't own, but they were given by somebody else. God owns the spiritual gift and He's going to hold us accountable and He's going to take inventory. How did you use your spiritual gift, McManus, of whatever it is? Whether it's teaching and service or leadership. I will be held accountable for the gifts that God has given me and every single one of us will be held accountable. We need to be good stewards of the spiritual gift God has entrusted to us. You cannot implement your spiritual gift on a regular ongoing basis in service to others if you are not in your local assembly on a regular ongoing basis mixing it up with the local church in a formal, consistent, faithful manner. Hence, the need for membership and accountability. All Christians need to be serving in the local church. Number three, all Christians need to be doing the one another's. Doing the one another's. Galatians 6.10. Basic to the Christian life. I have heard, I mean, I've read this even in some Christian books, that all that matters is getting saved. You get saved and, oh, you've, you've reached your goal. That is not all there is to it. Uh, that's missing a key component in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So it's not just getting saved is not the goal or the only goal. I got saved, I'm done. No, you got saved to serve. That's Ephesians 2.10. God saved you to serve others. God saved you to work out your salvation through fear and trembling by doing good works that God prepared for you before the foundation of the world in service to others. And you are to spend the rest of your days, and I'm to spend the rest of my days working out my salvation in service to others, starting in the local church. That's Galatians 6.10. Let's look at it. So then while we have opportunity, Christians, in the local church, let us do good to all people. Do good. Be a do-gooder in the legitimate sense. But get this, and especially to those who are in the household of the faith. There's another verse that says a similar thing. Starting with the people of God. Do good, do good works, empowered by the Spirit of God on behalf of Christ, and it starts in your local church. Serving in your local church is really what this verse is teaching. And then I put in this point, all Christians need to be regularly, uh, all Christians need to be doing the one another's on a regular basis. What I mean by that are there are these commands in the New Testament that say, uh, do something to one another, love one another, serve one another, rebuke one another, admonish one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, and on and on it goes. And there's like 12. No, there's not. There's like 20. No, there's not. Tim Wong said there's like almost 40 that he counted. He's the detail guy. But you've got like 30 plus of these basic commands in the New Testament that are expected of every Christian that they are supposed to be doing these acts of service to one another in the church. You can't fulfill the one another's, which is a basic mandate from Christ, sitting home by yourself, isolating yourself, being hit and miss in your church attendance, not getting involved, not commiserating, not rubbing shoulders with other people in the church. Can't do it. And this is a basic calling and command of God that all Christians need to be doing the one another's on a regular basis in the local church. 
And we'll see another verse related to this in the next point. So let's go on to number four. All Christians need to regularly worship with the local church. Uh, number four, worship with a local church. Sorry about that. Worship with the local church. Number four, all Christians need to regularly worship with the local church. Go to Hebrews 10. This is probably the clearest teaching. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, here at Grace Bible Fellowship, we, we take attendance. Uh, not to be legalistic. We believe it, it's required to fulfill a basic biblical mandate we have, starting with the shepherds and the elders. We are supposed to oversee. We are accountable. We are responsible for the sheep. We want to know who our sheep are. We want to be in touch of their lives on a big picture, not micromanaging. That's not our responsibility. Pastor, solve every problem I have in life. That's not my calling. Can't do it. Impossible. The, the verbs are shepherding and overseeing, giving direction, general spiritual oversight, preaching the word, feeding you. I give you the food. You put it in your mouth. You chew it. You swallow it. So these are big picture commands and terms. But look at Hebrews chapter 10 with respect to you need to be a regular part of the fellowship. Starting, actually we'll go before verse 25. I put 25 there. We'll start a little bit earlier just to get the context. Um, <clears throat> so he's talking to the brethren in verse 19. He's talking to us an assembly. This is a corporate assembly of believers in a local church, verse 19 of chapter 10. Then in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Us, plural, we together, nobody isolated. And when we do come together, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Notice a one another passage here. The implication is we're coming together, corporate fellowship on Sundays in worship, other nights in Bible study, fellowship, small group assemblies, big group assemblies. The idea is corporate assemblies. This is basic. This is required. This is mandated here. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds when you go to church, when you go to be with the saints, preparing your heart, preparing your mind. How might I stimulate one another or somebody in love and good deeds today when I go to GBF, when I go to worship? That's how we should be thinking. But again, you can't stimulate others to love and good deeds if you aren't around, if you're ditching church. We keep attendance. And we see that people are hit and miss and inconsistent on their attendance. And we're thinking, wow, if you're flaky and hit and miss... There's a problem because that's basic spiritual health. You can't fulfill basic biblical requirements from Jesus if you're hit and miss and inconsistent for illegitimate reasons. There are people who have legitimate reasons and then there are those with illegitimate reasons. And this was going, this problem existed in the Apostles' day. And that's why this author of Hebrews is writing this. Why is he writing this command in verse 23 to 25? Because people were ditching church. People were being flaky and inconsistent. And so he writes to correct that wrong behavior. This is basic human behavior. Basic, selfish human behavior. We are all susceptible to this. Believe me, I was the ditch king. Oh, I probably shouldn't confess this. There's too many people here. For a while in college. Ditching the chapels. That was not at the master's college. It was another school. But then I repented. I saw the light. I became a Christian. And I made up all those chapels. And that was very hard. So I know what it is to ditch. Early on in my Christian life, I was kind of flaky about church attendance too. But it's easy to be flaky if you're not involved. It's easy to be flaky if you don't have an ongoing ministry you're accountable for. 
So let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not Here it is, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together. There it is. Corporate worship with the saints, with your spiritual family on an ongoing, regular basis. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. There it is. Some people are ditching church and being inconsistent. And he's saying don't do that, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near, the greater urgency now more than ever to be with the saints, to be with the people of God, to be encouraged, to be built up, to use your gifts to serve, to worship God, to hear the Scriptures, to feed your soul, to stimulate one another to love and good deed. This is absolutely basic to Christian living. Uh, don't have time to go there, but I did put the re- uh, references down for you. Uh, all Christians need to regularly worship with the local church. Acts 2.44, it says, uh, when Jesus started the church in Jerusalem, it says as it was a habit that all the saints came together regularly. They even did it more than just Sundays. They did it Sundays and more. And it says they came together. That's the word used. They came together for worship. They came together to hear the apostles' doctrine. And that's preaching. They came together to break bread. Those are the ordinances. They, they came together to pray, to praise through song. That's, that's church life. That's body life. That was the standard. That's the model. That's what we need to follow. First Corinthians 14, Paul says the same thing. When you assemble. When you, hey, Corinthians, when you assemble together, when you come together as a corporate worship uh, service as a church, it's, it's a given. This is basic. That's why there was a, a movement started in like the 60s and 70s of a new church, a new way to do church. And uh, the essence of it was you do it in your own home. Well, you know, the early church did church in their own home. And the idea of this was you got a group of, it starts with your family, and as your family you do church in your home. Well, the problem with that is it just abandons all these basic other requirements from the Bible. You don't have biblical leadership. You don't have elders. You're not stimulating one another to love and good deeds. You're not gathering with the saints to fulfill all those basic mandates of apostles' doctrine and communion with all the other saints that were gathering together that's required in Scripture. You're just doing your own thing according to your own agenda as a spiritual maverick in your home in the convenience of your living room and then chalking it off as spiritual because they did church in their home. And an entire movement grew out of that and books written. This went on for three decades and there's still elements of this and pockets of Christianity even today. And the idea, it's abandoning the corporate assembly of all believers, which is central to true church life. 1 Corinthians 14.26, when you assemble, when you come together, the implication is you must. You must assemble. You must come together. You must come together as a group. And the precedent for this was also in the Old Testament. When God's people came together, Nehemiah chapter 8, all the men, all the women, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and the men of God read the Scriptures as the people listened and worshipped. There's the precedent. The corporate component of local church mandates, requires formal membership in the local church. Let's go on to number five. Uh, Why membership is a good idea. Well, all Christians need to be accountable to local pastors. Or you could say it this way. All Christians need to be accountable to local elders. Or all Christians need to be accountable to uh, local overseers or bishops or episcopos. Just it goes by a lot of different words. Same thing. And like I said, these two verses, this uh, point, number five, if you put an asterisk there, and the two verses that basically are the foundation of membership for GBF and I think any local church would be 1 Peter 5 and Hebrews 13. And anybody that ever wants to join the church at GBF, these are the two main verses uh, that we highlight in the membership process in terms of our philosophy of membership and why it's biblical. 
First Peter 5 is a command to elders in the church. Hebrews 13 is a command to the people in the church. There's an obligation for elders and an obligation for lay people, non-elders. And guess what? They are complementary. They go together. And when you put them together, I think what you have is church membership. And it's formal. And the command to the elders, we read this earlier. Tim Wong read this. There were two main commands. Hey, elders, I'm talking to you. Elders in the local church, two main things you need to do. Shepherd, that's the verb. Shepherd the people. And the next verb is by exercising oversight. That's a command. And then it says, I'm going to be accountable. Can you imagine that? I'm going to be accountable to the chief shepherd Jesus someday for the people I was shepherding. That is scary. That's exciting, but that's even more scary than exciting. I'm accountable to Jesus for shepherding your soul and oversight of your soul. Yikes! And immediately, as an elder and a pastor, I think, well, then don't give me too many people, God. Give me a few. And oh, and I want to know exactly who they are. No surprises, please. I don't want to get up into heaven and have Jesus, the Lord Judge, ask me, so how come you weren't taking care of this guy? I was, well, wow, I didn't know he was one of my sheep. I thought he belonged to Stephen. No, he belongs to you. So that's why I think the need for church membership. You have got to identify who your sheep are, and that's what First Peter 5 says. You read it carefully. It says, elders, shepherd the flock of God of those allotted to your care. Very specific terminology in the Greek text. That literally, God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit literally doled out to you. GBF, I'm giving you this person and this family and this man and this lady. And literally, that is what it means. These are, this is a finite, identifiable number of people who are our sheep, who are we are responsible for. And we don't want any ambiguity or unclarity. And as a result, we have our membership process where we are identifying those allotted to our care. Because that's who we have to give account for. And so that's how we've been shepherding GBF since it started almost seven years ago. And it, is, it, has, been, it has done well for us as the shepherds in terms of fulfilling basic biblical requirements. We don't have we got four elders here at GBF. And anywhere from 180 to 200 people that come on a Sunday that we we can't possibly meet all the shepherding needs of 200 people. That's why those verbs are big picture verbs, exercising oversight, spiritual direction, not managing every detail of your life and being responsible for it. Um, so that's the shepherd's responsibility. Then you complement that with your responsibility as a lay person if you're not a... So go here. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. And let's look at it. One thing I routinely do uh, and have done since this church started is when somebody has been attending this church for quite some time, anywhere from maybe eight months to a year or more, and many times this would happen in conversation like at the fellowship meal or something. Or, or sometimes it happens when somebody comes up to me and asks me, hey, Pastor Cliff, can you write me a pastoral reference for this mission trip or this organization or this? Uh, yeah, what, what is it a- what's it asking for in the reference? What, what is my role? Well, it's asking for a pastoral reference. And so my first question is, hmm, am I the pastor of this person? If I am, then I will consider it. If I am not the pastor, I'm not going to do it. And if I do it, it will be with a caveat, and I will tell them, I'm going to say in there, I'm not your pastor. So I've done that many times. Can't do it with a clear conscience. And so there is, 
there are times where people will come up and say, can you fill out this pastoral reference for me? This has happened many times, actually. I'll say, well, am, it's asking for a pastoral reference. Yeah, that's right. Well, who's your pastor? Well, you are. Oh, I am? Wow, good to know. I didn't know that. What do you mean you didn't know that? Well, let's see, you go to church like once or twice a month here, and sometimes you're gone for three months, and you never join the church, and I don't even know where you are when you're not at art. I, I just didn't know that. You've never told me that. Thanks for telling me. Now I know I'm responsible for you. And we do have a membership process here that will actually solidify that arrangement and that agreement. If that's really what you desire, and I welcome that, and let's talk and explain what that means. And sometimes people actually will become members as a result of that because they just didn't know. Oh, okay, I'll pursue that. And then there are other times they're like, wow, whoa, heavy, yikes, I'm out of here. Whoo, too much accountability. Really? But that's what this verse is talking about. So let's go ahead and look at it. Um, Verse 17. Okay, Christian, obey your leaders. This is talking about your spiritual leaders in your local church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So, And they, notice all these personal pronouns, your leaders, uh, they keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Don't give your pastor or elder grief for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, they, them, they... So, there is a clear recognition that these people should have in terms of who their elders and pastors are. And that's why it's a fair and legitimate question for a pastor to ask somebody, who is your pastor? And if they say you are, then, well, that needs to be mutual, because I didn't know. So we need to formalize this relationship. Because after all, you're calling me your pastor. You've got a pretty high calling in verse 17. There are two scary verbs in there. Obey your pastor. Wow. It gets worse. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That means listen to them and do what they tell you to do. Wow. That's heavy. That's a huge responsibility. By the way, I said these two passages are perfect compliments because in 1 Peter 5, it tells the elders, don't lord your authority over the sheep. See, that's the perfect, beautiful balance. Don't abuse your authority because elders, pastors can abuse their authority. And lay people can abuse their spiritual freedoms. I'm not submitting to that pastor. I'm not submitting to those elders. I don't have to. I'm out of here. That happens. People did that to the Apostle Paul. Believe me, if they did it to the Apostle Paul, they're going to do it to no-name McManus. Obey your leaders. Listen to them. Submit to them. Do what they tell you to do. Not in every area of life, but in spiritual things. In the area of their domain. In church life. In spirituality. So there's limits to it. Submit to them. Why? Because they watch over your spiritual soul. They're trying to tell you what God thinks is best for you and it's based on nothing. I don't ever have anything to say to somebody that's not in the Bible. The only thing I ever have to say to a sheep in terms of life and those kind of things that they need to submit just is out of the Bible. That's why I try to quote Scripture to them. You need to love your wife. You need to submit to your husband. You, you, can't, you, gotta, you need to stop exasperating your children. And those aren't just pithy platitudes. It's the living Word of God. It's all i got to go with. <laughs> I can't make up something that's not in the Bible. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they will they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Bad news. Don't lock horns with your elders. So all Christians need to be accountable to local pastors. So therein lies the definition of a, a definitive demarcation of membership so we know who our sheep are. And so literally, uh, here at GBF, the elders, 
we have we have what we call the shepherd's list. And it's literally the names of all of our members. We we know who the members are. And then one of our detail guys knows exactly how many that is, whether it's 129. And we pray for these people. We talk among ourselves as elders. How is this family doing? Who is the last one that had a connection with this person, this member, or this family? How are they doing financially? Are they out of work? Uh, what do they need in terms of prayer? How are they doing in attendance? Are they faithfully serving? Do they have a ministry? Are they in a Bible study? Do they go to Sunday school? Uh, how are they, how's their physical health? How's their employment? Are there ways we can bless them with benevolence if they're in need? Uh, are, really, they're out of line? Really, they're being sinful and divisive? Really? Oh, and they're having a bad attitude? Ooh, okay. And they didn't, okay, they didn't go with the exhort. Okay, wow, discipline. So that's the kind of conversations we have behind the scenes, shepherding our sheep by name, praying for our sheep. So it's very specific. And it's a definitive number allocated to our care. If you didn't have church membership, we could not do this. I know because I've served in three churches previously that didn't have church membership. And when it really got ugly, there were times where it really got ugly, when you don't have a definitive membership and you don't have names on your role, uh, one place where it really gets ugly is when you're trying to do church discipline of somebody in the church when you don't have membership. Because your membership, your discipline process has no teeth. You can't fulfill Matthew 18, 15 through 17 of going through step-by-step in church discipline without membership, really. Because they can just bail with no accountability and you can't do anything about it. They're not members. So that was one problem. The other problem where you don't have membership and it's a problem is when you have a problem in the church, usually at the leadership level, and the church is on the brink of a church split or something. And people are taking sides and lines are being drawn in the sand of who they're going to have their loyalties to, this pastor or that leader. And then inevitably people actually start reading the church constitution to see what the legal rules are of how to fight this fight. And then there's a vote coming up. And then you got people coming out of the word work and people coming out of the grave you haven't seen in 10 years to cast a vote for this leader or that pastor. And there's no membership. And there's no way to referee this thing. And I mean, really, this is first-hand experience of more than one church, and it just got ugly and totally unmanageable because you say, hey, well, you haven't been to church here in 12 years, so? And you can't say, well, you're not a member because I don't have membership. Hey, I used to come to this church 12 years ago. I came to this church before you were born. I'm voting. (laughs) And so we watched that and utter confusion and disarray, and boy, was it ugly. But, But when you have a definitive membership... Boy, it sure makes things easier. And members in good standing, it sure makes things easier. And then you can fill the biblical mandate of 1 Corinthians 14 that says do all things decently and in order in the church. And you can be a good testimony and not a lousy testimony to the watching world as you manage your difficult church affairs. So those are probably two of the areas where it's really difficult um, to try to shepherd God's people. Uh, another one, all Christians need to be accountable to local pastors. That, the, the accountability, the A word, that's a scary word. Guess who doesn't like accountability? Living, breathing human beings. Sinners. Americans. Earthlings. Really. Accountability makes us uncomfortable. 
What do people do when they don't want to be accountable? They run. They run. They hide. That's what you do from accountability you don't like. You run away from it. You isolate yourself. Go to Proverbs 18. Depending upon your English translation, I have a New American Standard, but there are other translations that word it differently, but it's still the same essence in terms of its meaning and effectively communicates the point. But uh, the NASB here says, he who separates himself. Okay, the person, the Christian or the believer, I should say, because he might not even be a Christian. The professing believer who isolates himself or herself. You know, what does that mean? That means they're running away from the body. They don't want to be around other Christians. Why? They don't want accountability. They don't want to have to answer the questions. What's the easiest thing to do? Retreat. Isolate yourself. Go lock yourself in your home. Go get away from the church. Get away from God's people. Get away from the confrontation. Get away from the accountability. People do it all the time. That's what this is talking about. The one who separates himself, or one translation says legitimately, he who isolates himself. This plays right into Hebrews chapter 10. People ditching church. People being hit and miss. That's why we take attendance and monitor from a big picture not weekly, but like monthly and yearly, the consistency of our members, especially of their faithfulness in attending. If they're not traveling or if they're not sick, but just we don't know anything other than the fact that they are isolating themselves for some reason. This, this is a yellow flag. This could be a red flag. And usually it is. Usually it is. Boy, these members, they haven't been here, or this member hasn't been here. Okay, well, they're mad at somebody. Uh, they're in conflict. They are frustrated. They are confused. They are visiting another church. They are doing this. They are doing that. They're not doing well. They are depressed. I mean, we don't know what the answer is. All we know is they need help. They need the shepherds to come beside, talk to them, hear what's going on, pray with them, encourage them, hold them accountable if necessary. But this is a telltale sign uh, that something is usually wrong. And it's not just in the church. This is in life where you... People go by a long period of time and you don't hear from them. A lot of times that's a, an indicator they aren't doing well. They're not healthy. This is what people do when they get hyperly depressed. They don't want to talk to anybody. They crawl under a rock and go hide and sleep and isolate themselves. So it's a sign of a lack of health usually on one or more levels. And so Proverbs 18 says, The one who separates or isolates himself, he seeks his own desire. So many times it's totally selfish and self-centered. I want this. They're not giving me this, so I want to go see if I can find this elsewhere. I want to find greener grass somewhere else. And Proverbs says that is foolish thinking. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. And then the next verse says he's a fool. So, hence the need uh, in the New Testament and all these exhortations of how important it is for the saints to be gathering on a regular basis with the corporate, corporate assembly so you won't be isolating yourself and won't be by yourself. And by the way, just in human nature as a human being, it's not good to be by yourself anyway. It is not good to be alone. Ephesians or uh, Genesis 2.18, get this, before sin entered the world and before God cursed the earth, God said when he created Adam, it is not good for the man to be alone. Being in isolation is bad. The worst thing you can do to punish somebody is put them in solitary confinement for a long period of time and they go insane. 
God knows. Human beings were made in His image. God is a social being. God has ongoing, continual interaction amongst the Trinity and has for all eternity. And humans are to be likewise in constant interaction, interfacing, fellowship, interdependence with other human beings made in God's image. That's healthy. To do the opposite is unhealthy. It is not good for humans to be alone. That's why it is foolish to isolate yourself. That's why God gave Adam the perfect complement in Eve as a social being made in the image of God. And that applies to all of us as well. It is not good for any of us to be alone. We can't be isolated. That's very dangerous. Suicide is usually committed in isolation. The most heinous sins are usually committed in isolation by yourself. You succumb to the greatest temptations usually when you're in isolation by yourself. God knows. It is not good for humans to be alone. You need the church, the church body. And we need you, by the way. We need you. If you're a Christian and you're a part of this church, God has given you a spiritual gift and you are a part of God's spiritual body and you're, and Paul describes it, you're either a big toe or an ear. Hey, why are you laughing at big toe? Very important. Big toe. Giving you balance, power, especially if you're a pitcher in baseball. You couldn't pitch if you didn't have a big toe. But anyway, maybe you're an ear, a pinky, a lip, a ma- whatever it is. That's how Paul, that's the terminology he uses. We need you. One suffers, we all suffer. Um, so, actually, four and five kind of go together on that issue of not isolating yourself and subjecting yourself to being vulnerable. Uh, let's go on and go ahead and read that other passage I gave you. Very important. First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. All Christians need to be accountable to their local pastors and elders. So Thessalonians is in the T section of your New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you got Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. The Apostle Paul, again, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. So this was a local church congregation. Paul planted this church. He pastored these people. He knew these people. He loved these people. These people were really good to the Apostle Paul. But they had some problems. And so he's writing this letter as a corrective to them. And at the end of his letter, he says this in chapter 5, verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, says the New American Standard updated version, which is actually not the best translation. But other English translations have other different words or synonyms. Uh, We request of you, brethren, that you know. We request of you, brethren, that you love. Who? Love those who diligently labor among you, spiritually speaking. Those who minister to you in the local church, especially starting with the leadership. Appreciate them, love them, know them. uh, That you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. See, we have charge over you, over your soul. There's that authority thing that people hate so much. Have charge over you in the Lord. It's a spiritual oversight on the spiritual plane. Caring for your soul. And get this. And the leaders among their all their job also is to give you instruction, or one translation says to admonish you. That's their job. Pastors and elders, one of their responsibilities is to admonish you. What does that mean? Literally it means to verbally place in into the mind. Verbally to place spiritual truth in your mind. Take what's in the Bible, put it in your mind so those God's thoughts will become your thoughts on any given issue. And I do it verbally by teaching and preaching. That's what admonish means. So admonish isn't always a negative rebuke. It can be a positive 
instruction. But it's verbal. And that's our responsibility, to get you to think biblically on all issues of life. And appreciate your pastors and elders and Bible teachers that do that. Show them appreciation. Verse 13. And that you esteem them very highly. Don't badmouth them. Gossip about them. Complain and whine about them. Why is Paul saying this? Because that's what some people did to him, especially the Corinthians. Badmouthed and complained about Paul behind his back and even to his face when he got there. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. They're doing spiritual work. It ain't easy to be a pastor and elder, I'll tell you that. Very difficult. Tiring, weary, emotional, psychological. Why? Because if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as an elder and a pastor, you actually care about the people and you actually care about their problems and their life. And so there are many, 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 many nights where you go to bed and you don't sleep. And that was the testimony of the Apostle Paul. He said he had them in his mind constantly. And that's a good shepherd. So esteem them very highly. Pray for them. Esteem them highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So all Christians need to be accountable to local pastors. Number six. Why is membership a good idea? Because all Christians need to be accountable to the local body. Go to Matthew 18. I already mentioned this a little earlier. Boy, if you don't have a formal church membership, it's almost impossible to do church discipline when it's required the way Jesus said you need to do it. Matthew 18:15-17. I know this because I've been at churches that didn't have membership and basically you really couldn't do steps three and four in church discipline. This is at the end of Jesus' life, just before he's going to be crucified. He's mentioned the church once, that he's going to build the church, and now this is the maintenance of the church in chapter 18. How do you deal with conflict in the church and sin in the church and restoration and reconciliation? Well, it's a simple process. You just do what Jesus says to do. Don't make it more complicated. That's what People mess it up because they want to add to the words of Jesus. It's like he needs help. No, he knows his church. It's his church. It's his body. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. This is the best way to do it. This is the only way to do it. Let's not deviate. Let's not add or take away from the discipline process. Four easy steps. Fourteen, Not easy, but four simple steps. 14 through 18. If your brother sins, if your Christian, a fellow Christian sins, go and show him his fault. You've got to bring the facts. You do it in private. You're prayerful. You're godly with a motive of love and reconciliation. And you go and you show him his fault in private. You don't send an email. And an epistle stating your case. You go and talk to him in private with the facts. And you keep it limited to the facts. If he listens to you, that means if he, has, if he or she has softened and realizes, wow, I offended you, I did sin. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? If they listen to you, then you've won your brother or sister. And then you have forgiveness, matter, settled. Don't ever talk about it again. If you ever bring that up again, you're violating 1 Corinthians 13 that says true love is bringing up nasty things from the past in the present. Don't do that. That's a violation of biblical love. Forgiven, forgotten. As far as the east is from the west, the same way Jesus forgave all of your sins and my sins. To be remembered no more. If your brother doesn't listen to you or your sister, when you go confront them privately, verse 16 is step 2, if he does not listen to you, then take one or two with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So now you go, they didn't listen, they hardened their heart, and so now you and one or two others, and so the three of you go and you confront this person about the sin, laid out in the facts, seeking reconciliation, 
talking to them privately, just the four of you, and they might be convicted. The Spirit's worked on their heart. And if they listen and they say, oh, I sin, please forgive me, then it's done, settled, over. The circle is still small of who needs to know about it, never to be repeated again. But it could be they harden their heart and they don't listen. That's verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, the small group of three, then you, the next step, step three, is you tell it to the church. Here at GBF, we would just tell it initially to our members. At other churches, they tell it to whoever's there on Sunday morning. And if you're a church of 10,000 people, that church, they tell it to all 10,000 people, half of which are not members of that church. And the whole city knows. Yikes. But that's how they do it. Um, But if he refuses to tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, so then the church is supposed to go after that sinner and say, you need to repent. You need to repent and seek forgiveness. It's for your good. It's for God's glory. I'm praying for you. I love you. You need to repent. And sometimes they do. I've seen people repent at that stage. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then you're like, wow, Jesus knew what he was talking about. He knows how to deal with sin in the church. That's awesome. And then they're to be restored publicly as well, according to Corinthians, if that happens, and reaffirmed in love and embraced and welcomed back like the prodigal son in the church. But it could be that they just turn their ear in a hardened manner to everybody in the church. The whole church comes after them. They don't care. They're acting like an unbeliever, and that's what this is trying to expose, whether this person is a real Christian or a phony. That's the whole point of the passage. In the end result, if you do it the right way, you'll come up with the proper diagnosis at the end if you don't truncate the process. So if they don't listen to the church, you go to step number 4, uh, verse 18, uh, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Treat him like an unbeliever because they're acting like one. And if they continue to act like an unbeliever, they probably are. And so what you had was a phony believer. They were a Christian only verbally, but not regenerated in the heart. They were weeds, not wheat. They were a goat, not a sheep. And that's what Jesus is Exposing here. Now, when it says in verse 17, if it gets to a certain point, tell it to the church. If you don't have membership, you really can't do that. Not really. Not in an effective manner. Because again, like I said, there's no teeth to the bite in terms of accountability if you don't have a membership process. So all Christians need to be accountable to the local body, the fellow church members, at a minimum for fellow members who are required to implement Matthew 18, the church discipline process, beginning one person at a time. So in summary, so that is church membership. And I would invite anybody that is interested in membership at Grace Bible Fellowship, if you wanted to pursue it or you have questions about it, uh, it starts really just with talking to me, and all I do is, like I did this morning, just want to get to know you a little bit. Mainly hear your testimony. How did, you know, are you saved? How did you get saved? And what were the circumstances? And then ask if you've been baptized after becoming a believer uh, in a biblical fashion through immersion. And if that's the case, then I pass you on to our membership guy, Elder Tim Wong. Let me close with this. Um, we try not to make membership complicated uh, at GBF because it doesn't need to be. It's real simple in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And so once you become a member at GBF, then we just ask our members to, at a minimum, Hold to the membership covenant. And it's really a kind of a vow that they make, an informed vow that they make when they join the church at GBF. We take it very seriously as a church. Making a vow. Like making a marriage vow. So you don't just leave your church on a whim, superficially, for unbiblical reasons. As a matter of fact, that's one of the questions I will typically ask now 
when people join the church is, under what conditions would you quit or leave GBF membership? It's a good question. And I've done that recently, and some people said, well, boy, it'd have to be pretty bad. I like that answer. It would have to be pretty bad. I can tolerate a lot of mess and yuck and sinners. I was like, cool. I like you. You, you should join our church. Yeah, I'm not a sissy, lighthearted person that doesn't get vanilla ice cream and I'm out of here. This was a recent conversation I just had. How refreshing was that? And I said, it's got to be pretty bad. It's got to be like major compromised teaching from the pulpit, you, McManus, or some gross, immoral deed done at the leadership level or some egregious abuse done in the church. And I was like, wow. Can I write that down? Uh, I'm looking at um, Ecclesiastes. I want to close with this Ecclesiastes uh, after Proverbs. Talking about this vow and this high-level commitment to membership here at church, uh, starting at verse uh, chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, says this, When you make that vow before God, that's what it is, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are here on earth. Therefore, let your words be few when you're making vows and commitments and covenants. This would apply to marriage. This would apply in a courtroom. And I think this applies to membership at GBF. Verse 4. When you make a vow to God, I will uphold the membership covenant at GBF. Do not be late in paying it. For, he who, for God takes no delight in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Oops, I joined prematurely. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there's emptiness. Rather, fear God, keep your vows. So that's, just so you know, that's the seriousness we have when we talk about the membership covenant. And there's only four points to it. Here's the membership covenant. Uh, number one, I will, keep, I will share the responsibility of my church by praying for the church, giving to the church, and praying for the leaders of the church. Members, when was the last time you actually prayed for the leaders of your church? It's a good reminder. Number two, I will serve the ministry of my church by discovering and using my, my gifts, by serving the church, by reading my Bible and applying its truths, and by developing a servant's heart. Pretty simple, right out of the Bible. Point number three, I will support the testimony of my church by living a godly life, by attending faithfully, by witnessing to unbelievers, and by being hospitable. Basic Christianity. And finally, number four, I will safeguard the unity of my church by acting in love toward other members, being forgiving, really, by submitting to the church leaders in the spiritual realm of their domain as required by Scripture, and speaking the truth in love and by refusing to gossip, which actually can tear a church apart, gossip. Uh, So that is specifically the GBF membership, and that's under the umbrella of biblical membership. And most of all, remembering that It is Jesus' church. He promised to build it. He's faithful to his promise. He's the senior pastor of the church, by the way, because that's what it says in 1 Peter 5. The chief shepherd means senior pastor. He's the ultimate shepherd. We are all accountable to him and his church. And with that, let's give him the glory and let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Uh, Thank you for the series that we have been able to uh, set aside some special time to think about the basics of church life, God, basic responsibilities you've put before us of conflict resolution, giving, serving, discipleship, biblical preaching, uh, and then just today, Lord, on membership and commitment and faithfulness in the local church. And God, we, we need your help. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are 
the senior pastor of the church. It is your church. You continue to build it. Nothing will prevail against it. Thank you that you adopted us by grace into your spiritual family. Thank you that you hold us securely, eternally in the palm of your hand. No one can snatch us from your ownership. God, what a great promise. Lord Jesus, thank you for ongoing, continual forgiveness of sin that we have because of your death on the cross. Father, thank you for giving us the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives with us wherever we go, who is our comforter, our advocate, our teacher. And that literally, you never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of your church, your precious body. And God, I pray that you'd continue to have your hand of protection on our local assembly here at Grace Bible Fellowship, all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.